You're listening to a Radio Stockdale podcast. Podcasts that are inspiring, interactive, and feature various discussions of leadership, ethics, and law. Welcome to Philosophy at the Movies, a podcast where we discuss themes in the history of philosophy through the medium of films. I'm Alex Baker, and joining me as always... Sean Baker. And today's topic is the 1984 film, Threads. So this movie takes place in Sheffield, Britain. This is Mm -hmm. a BBC, made-for-TV movie from the BBC. And it's a... Sheffield is a real city. It's a pretty big city it's got a lot of industry and it's also strategically located next to an airbase yes and as we really we start throughout the beginning of the film there are two main characters we follow um their name is ruth and jimmy they're a young couple Mm -hmm. um ruth has just become pregnant and they're sort of they're having to tell their parents and they're not married, but then Jimmy decides to marry Ruth, figuring it's the right thing. It's the typical, what do you call it, a shotgun wedding? Yeah, not even that. I mean, he decides to do it. The shotgun wedding, typically, the parents force the wedding, okay. right? Yeah. But he figures this is the honorable thing to do, yes. and then they start looking for a place for themselves, and they get this apartment. But that's just that's not the main story. No. The main thing that's going on, as this is sort of happening, we meet various people around Sheffield, is there's this growing crisis we hear through news reports and radio broadcasts going on in the Middle East, particularly between the Soviet Union and the U.S. Um, there's, there, the Soviet Union is going into Iran, and so is the U.S., and eventually the Soviet Union moves nuclear warheads into an Iranian city. And the tensions just keep over. It's a, it's almost unbearable watching the film because it's about 30, 40 minutes of just this t- tension. Yeah, of it's increasing slowly. It's just turning it up. It's not boom. It's just turning yes. it up a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more. And, yeah. the, and eventually it's, you can tell everyone's getting concerned. It's particularly even in Sheffield. There is one man who is a government official and he's sort of in charge of if... Red, like a red alert thing. If if this happens, if you know, the, if we are attack, facing a nuclear war, we've got to have emergency precautions. So he's having all these secret meetings with all these people who are going to be charging food and public safety and yep. what are the likely things we do in this scenario. Eventually, they have to go into an underground bunker yeah. and it gets really bad. Gather as many people as they can, and they have to organize this. And, and none of them are in this, and. I think at some point he even mentions, you know, I, I volunteered for this, not quite knowing uh, what it would entail and uh, the expertise that would be required. So you think, I remember thinking along uh, along these lines when I'm watching him gather the people that are going to be in charge of organizing security and food distribution, water distribution, and uh, uh, law enforcement uh I'm thinking, well, hopefully the people he's, he has that will, will be helping him here will be uh, experts in these matters and be able to help this guy who uh, looks like he's going to be in over his head. But um, unfortunately, you find out rather quickly that uh, that entire staff that he's 
gathered in that underground uh, command center, uh, they're all equally inexperienced in this and uh, ill-prepared for the, the uh, magnitude of the mission because, you know, we have to keep in mind that uh, the, the um, film is focusing, uh, although toward the end of the film, I think it broadens the scope a little bit and talks about all of England, but at least through most of the film, they're focused only or primarily on the Sheffield area and mm-hmm. how the events are impacting these various characters that were introduced uh, to, including Ruth and Jimmy. Yeah, with um, their families, the the Kemps and the Becketts. Yes. And uh, we see that uh, the, uh, the quality of the command and control that uh, these locals in the Sheffield area are going to be able to maintain is very much dependent on the quality of the command and control of uh, uh, the nation as a whole. And what I think they do, uh, what they do a, a tremendous job with in this film is, even if it is rather alarmist, which it is, oh my goodness, but they do a very good job of showing just how difficult that would be for Britain as essentially an island um, after, uh, according to the film, at least 80 megatons of nuclear weapons have been uh, dropped all across the nation. And that... Uh, set against the even greater context of this world conflagration that has occurred because of the uh, 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 nightmare scenario of the Cold War, um, the, this uh, exchange, nuclear exchange between the two superpowers. Um, so you have to keep in mind, if 80 megatons were dropped on England, a, re- a relatively small, uh, as it were, portion of the globe, so to speak, you can only imagine what uh, the U.S. and the USSR had dropped on each other, not to mention uh, uh, perhaps China getting involved, other nuclear powers getting involved. Um, so you're, you're probably probably looking at orders of magnitude uh, greater, um, and, and that would have such a uh, effect on supply chain and the ability to transport and uh, food, water, medical care, all the just the basic necessities of life would be disrupted globally, right? So I think they, they kind of hinted all that in the voiceover, which, by the way, I like. I guess there were some arguments between the two producers yes, whether they is, should do that. It's very documentary style yeah. with the narrator is Peter Vaughn, and he's yeah. describing all the roles of people playing and what's going to happen. Yeah, and I actually think that's very effective. I think the film's better for it than without it. Um, uh, but you see the, the ramifying and cascading effects that would occur on, after a global war of this magnitude. And uh, it's very much a warning to that effect. And it just shows you uh, probably it would have been the case um, that even if this group of people trying to control things in the Sheffield area were experienced in such things and were competent, perhaps it wouldn't have helped. <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, so they do a very good job with that, I think. And as we say, it's eventually about halfway through the movie, the town of Sheffield gets hit. And it's a very shocking scene because you can see sort of the 
mushroom cloud in the distance, but it's still a ways away, so they haven't quite been hit, and everybody's panicking, yeah. and then something, boom, just hits close, and it's this blinding white light, yep. and this wall of you know heat and flame engulfing the town, yep. and then pretty much for the next hour of the movie, it just goes through, you know, you said the anarchy and chaos, the, the government planners are basically trapped underground, yep. some of them died when some of their debris hit, so they have no place to go, yep. they are saying we're not going to be able to get to everybody because basically the places where there's basically ground zero for the detonation, like it's hope it's pointless even going there because nobody's going to be alive anyway. Yeah, yeah. So they're trying to plan that, but they can't get out. They can't get relief. And basically the whole place descends into chaos. Mm-hmm. And while you're having Ruth and Jimmy, particularly Jimmy is, Ruth is having trouble finding where Jimmy is. And not, meanwhile, she's growing along, growing along her stages of pregnancy and then the film sort of flat, kind of moves pretty fast after being very close, just like almost day by day, a little yeah. bit more, a little bit more. But once the bomb hits, it starts progressing faster, and you see the decay. I mean, all the dying, mass starvation. Yep. You know, basically, public order is gone. And right. They even talk about that currency is now useless. And the yes. thing is, people are food is, is the new food. currency. Yes. And basically, you work for food. You have to people are moving out to the countryside, mm-hmm. going to farms and basically work the grain and you, you work you get some food to eat. Yeah. And and what's compounding the difficulties there is uh the fact that there were or was so much uh dust and debris uh kicked up by the nuclear war that a nuclear winter has occurred and uh they do a good job of uh showing that yes. as well. Um, so obviously the, there's going to be a big impact on the agricultural uh, abilities and, and not to mention the fact that uh, the technology no longer functions, right? And, and things like fertilizer that guarantee a high level of uh, production of foodstuffs are gone. So as they put it in the film, we're back to medieval technology, basically, and medieval agricultural techniques against the backdrop of what did happen in the uh, portion in the middle ages essentially a winter a long winter cold weather um in in england and uh you see you uh, you see the results definitely uh and the the worst thing is even when the winter finally is over because of all of the pollution in the air with the nukes the ozone layer has been greatly uh diminished so yes. there's a lot of ultraviolet rays people more people are getting cancers and people are developing cataracts and yep. that's what eventually happens to ruth yes and right. one of the more painful scenes in the movie is when because now there's no basically public safe hospitals are basically gone so she when she gives birth she just has to find a barn and just do it herself basically yeah and as time is going on she's raising her child but you see the child doesn't because ha- there's no educational system in place like you see briefly some children like what looks like an abandoned schoolhouse and they're sitting in the middle of this place and just watching this old tv that's meant for like you know kindergarten or preschool age but yeah they all look like they're probably in the fifth or sixth grade but yeah and they don't look like they're comprehending and it's a basic uh, language course if i recall correctly but Mm. i I had a question in that scene is where's the power supply for this vcr yeah but uh yeah so you see culture has collapsed and they do a good job of reflecting that in the kind of the bastardized, ver- bastardized version of the English language that the uh, that second generation is speaking. Um, 
uh, Ruth's daughter. She's a teenager, and there's one scene where she's she's managed to kill a rabbit and attempting to cook it, and these other teenage boys, roughly her age, find her, and they they say in this kind of strange pigeon English, "Give us, give us." Right, mm-hmm. and she doesn't want to give them the the rabbit, so there's a big fight about that. And uh, uh, they do. There's other scenes where they do a good job of portraying that uh, de- degraded form of English. It, it's they're yeah. almost reverting back to caveman form. And yes. there's kind of a lack of comprehension or emotion because when yes. her mom dies, she just goes. You know, she's she's speaking says, that broken English. She's saying ma ma. But when she finds out she's dead, there's no crying or emotion. Yeah. Because probably because they've seen it so many times and the population just keeps diminishing and diminishing. It's just another day for her. So she yeah. just kind of moves on and shrugs, even though it's her mother that's just passed. Yeah, and yeah. When she meets those gang of bullies, she's beaten and she's assaulted, mm-hmm. which results in a pregnancy. And the last scene in the movie is her giving birth. There's She's in a hospital, but it's very primitive. Yeah. And it seems that the, when she's born, the child is stillborn. And the last scene in the movie is her looking at the child and crying, either that it's because it's stillborn or there's a hint that it might have become severely mutated because of the radiation yeah. in the area. It's for a made-for-TV movie, knowing all the se- things with censorship and there are things you can't do in television that you might be able to get away with if it's a theatrical release. Mm-hmm. It is an incredibly bleak and dark film for, like I said, what is a yeah. made-for-TV movie. and. It's interesting because when this came out, it came out in 1984. I think the amount of times the BBC has broadcasted this on national on their television network has only been a couple of times. This yeah. and then like 20 years ago they did it once, and maybe one other time like back in 2015 or 2016. I think when you see what's going on today, particularly with Russia again, mm-hmm. there is there's still people wondering, you know, is that is Putin going to you know, launch a nuke on either the U.S. or Ukraine. And it's still relevant today, even though this movie is almost 40 years ago. Yeah, and, you know, it's it's even uh, uh, more alarming the amount of uh, uh, nuclear weapons that uh, there definitely has been proliferation uh, across the globe since the 80s right now. China's very much a big player now, uh, uh, along with uh, uh, unstable uh, countries like Pakistan, uh, Iran's probably very close to having some nuclear weapons, so the the, the threat is there, you know. And 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 the the, the uh, tinderbox could be lit in the Middle East. That's obviously always a hot spot. So they're 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 uh, uh, accurate in worrying about that part of the world. But there are other parts of the world too that could. Uh, we can think of China and Taiwan as being another hot spot where something like this might occur. Uh, and what we hope is the case is that the the uh, the effects of globalism, uh, the effects of interconnected economies are so strong that no uh, sane government would make that choice. Yeah, perhaps you know, but you do always have to wonder about the uh, effects of ideology. Sometimes people in the throes of uh, an ideological belief system uh, will do something. Uh, that looks to be catastrophic in the hopes of triggering some hoped-for in-state or something like that. You know, that's one of the worries that people have about Iran and the mullahs that run Iran. You know, maybe they think that doing something like this would would bring about the arrival of the 12th Imam, uh, a kind of messianic figure 
it would usher in a, a new uh, era in uh, the world. But unfortunately, cataclysm is required to bring this about. So you always wonder about that. Um, and this, uh, it's not clear what uh, triggers the, the war in this film, but uh, you can see that it is, uh, it, it is a, a Soviet-U.S. Uh, confrontation over Iran. Um, and, you know, the geopolitical uh, considerations there uh, are something to consider as a possible trigger there. You know, the, the uh, Russians are always wanting to have warm water ports, sources of energy, uh, uh, strategic um, access to different parts of the globe. Now, what's interesting now, though, is that, that was 1985. And at that point, um, people, most people projected as very likely that the Soviet Union wasn't going to go anywhere and was, in fact, uh, uh, particularly during the 70s, actually having a string of successes, actually, in uh, um, attaining the kinds of revolutions that they wanted that would bring to power at, uh, 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 regimes were at least friendly to them. Um, especially in the wake of the Vietnam War. Um, so there was a big worry, and uh, certainly I remember it back in the mid-'80s, uh, that uh, uh, there would be this kind of confrontation between the two superpowers. But now, looking in, in hindsight, you know, uh, from a 2022 perspective, looking back there, we see that did not occur. So you, you may at first think, well, okay, um, the uh, the Soviet Union's disappeared, so the, the, the threat of this is actually lesser. Um, but I think that would be naive, because uh, Putin, even though he's uh, probably not a communist theoretically, I, I, I don't know, it's kind of hard to think, uh, see with him, but he certainly has uh, another kind of um, uh, ideological and messianic view of Russia's role in the world. And uh, according to that view, Russia will hopefully, on their view, bring about some kind of a cultural uh, renaissance in the globe, and it may take military action to do it. And on the other side of the globe, uh, you have a Chinese regime, which is still very strongly Marxist-Leninist, especially with uh, its present leadership. And there's always been that kind of messianic strain in, in that political belief system. So the threat's still there, and it's, uh, it's perhaps even worse now um, than in 1985. So I think that's probably the reason that this thing hasn't been shown too many times uh, in the UK, because um, it does a good job of sketching the, 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 glo the local uh, 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 consequences of a global breakdown of that magnitude. Now, having said that, um, it's kind of interesting, I think, a little ironic almost, that this is a British film. If you look at studies that the, the British government did in the interwar years, um, between World War I and World War II, um, considering uh, how to deal with a large-scale warfare, and in particular, uh, long-term bombing of the homeland, you will see that uh, uh, they planned for 
a worst case scenario being something like the utter and complete breakdown that we see in this film. Now contrast that with the way the British actually reacted to the Blitz. You did not see chaos. You did not see a breakdown of society. You did not see people literally killing each other for food, right? And you did not see uh, the central and the local governments being unable to, even though the bombing was quite intense. Now, you may say, well, it was wise for them to plan for the worst case scenario and hope for the best. But I, I think there's a reflection there, though, of, of something about human beings that they kind of miss in this film. Um, if you look at other historical examples of large-scale catastrophes, be it earthquakes, wars, uh, ravages of disease, um, it's actually fairly rare to see this complete and utter breakdown and descent into chaos and anarchy. You don't. Um, uh, another, uh, another example from World War II is actually from the other side. Um, after the war, or actually at the late stages of the war, um, there was a, a study done by the U.S. Strategic uh, Bombing Survey of um, the effects of the large-scale bombing that occurred in Germany toward the end of the war. Because one of the, one of the hoped-for uh, ends would, have, uh, com- would be a complete demoralization of the populace so that they would... Uh, they would uh, in some way pressure their government to surrender. Um, it didn't occur. People actually became even more determined to defend their homeland in the face of that attack. That's, again, not unusual. So I, I, I think there is a, at the core of, of uh, human psychology, a, a, tendency under these kinds of uh, extreme uh, situations for people to actually band together. And you don't see the kind of um, uh, behavior you see uh, highlighted in this film where people are fighting each other for food, become callous to one another, don't care if they die. This just does not occur in these kinds of situations. So Maybe part of the reason that people were so greatly affected by this thing is because they saw the clash between uh, thinking of how they would respond themselves, the clash between what was portrayed and what they think would actually occur. I don't know. But I will say, as bad as the blitz and the bombing was, it wasn't nuclear weapons. And the bombs don't, like the bombs that the Germans were using, didn't have that as much of the destructive capability so you think with things such as nuclear winter and the effects of damaging the ozone layer and cancers and lack of food and it being on such a massive level yeah would it be would would it would they band together we want to bring up the director of Mm -hmm. this movie was mick jackson who funny enough about five six years later would direct the bodyguard with whitney houston kevin costner (laughs) that's another thing but he did painstaking amount of research yeah for the film, I even think he, depicting on what would happen if during a nuke blast, nuke blast yeah. he would even consult a Carl Sagan yeah. and a few other famous scientists. So yeah. 
I th- it's not like he didn't know he, he researched this very effectively. Yeah. So, but like you said, people didn't thought this movie was too alarmist. There were some government officials who would say, "No, we would be able to respond. We wouldn't have, be completely just overwhelmed like the officials in the movie. We would have a proper way to respond. We would find a way to maintain law and order." Yeah. So I wonder is was this film just being alarmist, or is this a realistic look of if this thing happened? Well, uh, probably the correct answer is a little bit of both, I'm thinking. Um, like I said, I, I think uh, they, they, they hewed very carefully to what people considered to be the likely, um, likely results of a large-scale nuclear war. So I think they get that right. They get the details of the nuclear winter right. Um, now... In terms of governmental inability to cope with such um, disasters, I, I'm not sure if they got that correct or not. Um, and it would depend. Because uh, we've never, literally have never seen this Anything before. quite like yeah. it, yeah. Now, we've seen global climate uh, variations in history that did bring it about that uh, the human population did drop, you know, rather severely. You've got to think about the Ice Age, for instance, but there were many Ice Age. There was a mini Ice Age during the medieval period that made it very difficult to undertake agriculture and so forth. But, you know, there were still governments in place. There were still people managing to adapt to it. And that went on for uh, hundreds of years, not just, just 10 or 20 years like we're sh- being shown here. Um, so you know, I, I guess I guess my view is you would think uh, world governments would be a little bit more competent than what's being portrayed here, even in the light of a, a global nuclear winter, they, because uh, they know the possibility, they know it could happen, so they will make contingency plans for that. Now that still forces them to ask difficult questions, right? Which are which are uh, uh, not heavily emphasized in the film, but mentioned a few times. Uh, like, what do you do in the case of food distribution when you don't have enough food for everybody? One of the answers they present is, well, you give more food for, for those that are uh, uh, physically able to work, less food to, to those that are not. Um, tough question to ask and answer in, in any case. Um, but you'd think they would have some some sort of a answer to that and some sort of a mechanism in place to uh, uh, in, uh, implement um, the decisions they make. So, uh, is it is it alarmist? Yes, but I think there's always purpose in the alarmism. You know, you want to have the population. Uh, prepped for the worst case scenario but it's a tricky business because you don't you also don't want to give them the impression that uh it's more likely than not that the government will fail in the worst case scenario um i think the film gives us that message right and it, it, by the way i should say the this film isn't alone in that in that regard you can find very alarming uh uh, works of fiction and v- very alarming uh, government uh, uh, publications in the United States sides, especially in the early 1960s during the Kennedy administration. 
that really are very alarming. I, I guess they'd say the purpose behind that is to get people prepared so they take it seriously, so they take their what steps they need to, you know, at the individual and family level, to uh, be prepared. But boy, you want to be careful with that because you don't want people panicking, thinking that uh, there's there's no chance that any kind of organized government's going to be a help us out. So we better help ourselves. When that occurs, then you have you know what Hobbes referred to as a war of all against all, and nobody's better off in that scenario. Yeah, and this isn't the first time there has been a made-for-TV movie about a post-apocalyptic scenario. Uh, BBC even did one about 18 years earlier called The War Game, which is about an hour long. Yeah. And in America around this same time, I think it was the late 70s, was one called The Day After, looking at it from the U.S. perspective. So this isn't something that was done for the first time. So I think there is some of that is probably officials and governments hoping things like this come out so they can get people, like you said, prepared. Yes. And one thing, you see this lack of government control in this movie. And one thing I'm thinking of is with the lack of... With the, in place, will there be more local tribal governments that are having control over certain sections of certain cities? This will now bring me a chance to bring up my favorite video game series, The Fallout. And <laughs> those who don't know, it takes... It's an alternate universe, sort of, basically, after post-World War II, the U.S. decides to, we're going to focus entirely on nuclear power. So in the show, in the game, you see robots, you see Levitt, uh, nuclear-powered cars, and the, in the case of the economy, just it, it's a great boom. They yeah. become a world superpower. And, but instead, we're refuting with Russia, it's more mostly China. And since we're consuming more in this economy... The resources keep growing scarce, eventually to the point where everybody's fighting for the oil in Alaska, particularly the U.S. and China. Yeah. And after a big war, we win, but it's not it, it doesn't know who struck first, but there's a thing called the Great Exchange where both sides launch nukes throughout the entire world, and it's apocalypse. But yeah. in every game, you're, there are these people that prepared called Vault Tech, or these underground shelters called vaults, and you hide and people survive there. But every game, you're... A, vault dweller and you come out seeing what the world's like been it's 100 years two sometimes 200 years since the mm -hmm. 2077 was when the attack happens okay throughout the game you meet various different governments who have taken in place of america and if sometimes you're in the west out in california there's a place called the new california republic and they have the california state flag but because it's mutated they have two-headed bear instead of one-headed <laughs> bear but that they're 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 considered the american was the replacement for the american government they're overall good but some people feel they're becoming too imperialist and yeah. stretching too thin but yeah. then there's another tribal called caesar's legion mm -hmm. which adopts the methods of the roman empire but they also believe in pillaging and slavery so the, you, you can side with either side but then also there was a remnant called the Brotherhood of Steel, which was um, people, leftovers from the U.S. military who had lost faith in the U.S. government and figured that this was going to happen. So they formed their own group and there's all and they have a they're considered the good guys, but they also is they're talking about education. They mm -hmm. feel in hoarding all sorts of books. They try to find books that aren't haven't been burned or destroyed from the pre-war era and store them. And they have these people called scribes who make copies and record yeah. and keep the education, but they don't trust the public. So all that educational purpose is just for people who are members of the Brotherhood. Yeah. And then finally, on the, on the other side, you have a group called the Followers of the Apocalypse. 
they somewhat they're not a violent organization they're mostly pacifists but they believe in medical care they help people particularly with dealing with radiation and the falling there's new kinds of drugs in the game that are becoming addictive they try to wean people off of drugs but yeah. they, and they also have the belief of collecting information particularly education but they want to share it with everybody yeah. they don't have that paranoia of people in the wasteland are not so you, you that's what i yeah. like about that game it deals with these yeah. clans and ideas and i wonder once it gets down because in this movie they talk about it gets down to medieval level of four to 11 million people yeah. and it's not packed and overpopulated like you could say today was it's probably spread out among the yes. uk and i wonder in that world will you see groups like you know the ncr or the brotherhood of steel or yeah so I, I think you you really would um, and that's what I think makes that uh, that game scenario plausible. Because I, I, as I was referring to earlier, I think human beings are hardwired to behave in that way. Tribes would form, and you can actually see that in governmental planning for uh, the worst case scenarios. There's always there are always plans for. Uh, as it were, handoff of power from the central government to local governments. And in the case that the United States government collapses, um, there are plans in place to uh, devolve the power to the state level and, if necessary, to smaller units. So you would naturally have that occurrences of precisely that nature. You would have tribes form. And I think that's precisely the point I, I, I kind of was making earlier about implausible nature of the scenario here. I don't think people would be so atomized as they are in this film to where they're literally at the individual level, uh, primarily interacting with other people simply as individuals and fighting for the food in that kind of Hobbesian state of nature. Um, you would see precisely that kind of an organization occur and what typically happens when that does occur in cases of natural catastrophe and so forth is almost if as a law of nature moral codes are formed legal codes are formed that uh tell people to limit what's acceptable and unacceptable behavior at least within the tribe and sometimes across tribes with regard to other human beings. And I, I'm pretty sure um, they've cashed in on, I, I think, our insight there um, in that game. And, you know, it brought to mind when I was watching this film and thinking about that, um, there's a great book by uh, Sebastian Younger. He's a journalist who's done a lot of time working with military units. And uh, uh, he, he, he observed the same it's typical for the same sort of thing to occur in, in military units. This uh, very strong bonds form, unwritten laws about how you should behave with regard to other people in, in the unit and so forth. And he says, he did some research, and he, he says these things kind of typically happen in the case of natural catastrophes too, and man-made catastrophes. And uh, what you find occurring at, at those more local levels and in bad situations like the Dresden bombing or, or like the Blitz is that uh, people be actually become more cohesive, uh, less uh, caste-oriented and tending to make assumptions about each other um, and simply uh, banding together, working together for the, uh, to make sure that um, the group as a whole survives gets food gets drink has security so all those other kinds of um, 
considerations kind of fall by the wayside, at least while the emergency's there. But what he also found, it's also the case, too, that once the emergency passes, people go fall back into their old habits. And uh, one of the one of the things he speculate or uh, uh, theorizes is the cause of this is in in normal society um, those kinds of functions preserva- or, or preservation of security uh, provision of food and drink things like that they're specialized tasks um, some people do it some people don't we use money to uh, uh, buy those services and goods from others. Well, in a catastrophe situation, that's not the case. Everybody has to either attempt to fend for themselves in those regards or better chance of success, band together, find ways that we can work collectively to do those kinds of things, at least until the emergency passes. And uh, he, he, his theory is that people recognize this very viscerally and at first hand. Uh, when catastrophe occurs. So as long as the catastrophe is in place, all the other things are by the wayside and they all function, they all work on these functions together cooperatively. And uh, once the emergency passes, um, um, old rifts and uh, as it were, uh, social castes reappear. And uh, that's interesting. It's true. Um, and again, I think it's just a almost hardwired inevitable feature of human nature. Um, and I, this film's curious because it, it it's almost like it ignores that. Uh, it does present a very Hobbesian, atomistic view of human beings, as essentially self-interested and incapable of seeing that cooperation will actually be in in your self-interest. Uh, they don't quite show that. I think it goes back to the title of the film, which is called Threads, and it shows it uses Sheffield as an example of basically everybody is connected through some way or another and relies on each other. And I think once that's taken away, those threads are yeah. taken out, yeah. then that's just when chaos happens. And I think you need a nu- uh, nuclear attack to really showcase that. Yeah, yeah. Let's just hope that their 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 view is... Uh, of what would happen in that kind of scenario, if God forbid it ever came to be, is inaccurate, and the perhaps the the, the vision of uh, fallout is a little more accurate. At least you have some functioning government there, and well, there is another group I forgot to mention <laughs> called the Enclave, which um, they it was supposedly the wealthy elite in there, but they they feel that they're the ones that are going to bring back control to the wasteland but they also feel that they are genetically pure and anyone else in the wasteland needs to be eliminated oh boy yeah so they're always the bad guys you always have to you always have to have bad guys yeah you always have to beat them in the game but (laughs) if if the world is almost like the world in fallout 200 years from now i'm just going to say we're all going to be very obsessed with 40s and 50s culture (laughs) everybody's going to have radio stations and listening to the ink spots all the time yes yes and not to mention the fact i think they're pretty sure they use a there were a great many um, uh, novelty songs that were recorded in oh, the yes. 50s and 60s that f- 
focus somewhere, some way or another on atomic weapons or World War III. And some of them are really humorous, by the way. But I'm yes, sure uh, they would be playing those as well. Oh, yeah. They're Sheldon Allman, uh, Crawl Out Through the Fallout. One yep. of my favorite songs in the Fallout games. That's that's going to be played a lot on the radio stations. <laughs> or Atom Bomb Baby. Yes. Or that's a good one. There's a whole bunch There's of them. There's a whole bunch of those. Okay. So getting close to the end of my questions here. Is there anything else you want to bring up since we're on the topic of Fallout? I swear I didn't bring up this movie just so I could talk about the game, but there yeah. is going to be a Fallout game called Fallout London. So we'll finally get to figure out what happened in London during this attack, and will it be something like Threads? And I'm almost, want to, whenever the game comes out, I want to play it just to see if they reference Threads in some way. Yeah, but, but I can see why people, I, I guess I'll just, you know, finish up with this observation i can see why people were tremendously upset and disturbed by this film i remember uh, uh having the same reaction after watching it it's just like i was a little stunned by this thing i said oh my god is is this portrayal of uh the utter breakdown of compassion and morality uh true would this occur in this kind of a scenario you know the the optimist in me wants to uh, believe no and you know that's why I bring up Sebastian Younger's book and in the historical instances like the uh, uh, the bombings during World War II didn't break it down, and that was done. And those were, you know, those those were events that were years in the la- in the in the making, so to speak. Uh, still didn't break down, so I hope that's the case. Um, but they do a hell of a job um, presenting that hell. And uh, did it on, as far as I know, a budget of only about four hundred and fifty thousand mm-hmm. uh, dollars. So, in terms of uh, cinematic power, this is one of the most powerful cinematic portrayals of a uh, a world, especially this kind of a, a dystopian world that I've ever seen. And it far outclasses films of much higher budget. So, kudos to these people; they did an excellent job. Okay. All right, thank you for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy at the Movies. You can find this podcast and more podcasts produced by the Stockdale Center by visiting the Radio Stockdale page at usna.edu. This program is hosted by Radio Stockdale. There you can also listen to their podcasts such as Ethics of the Naval Warrior and The Do-Over. If you like this podcast, you might be interested in my other podcast, Real Sounds, where each episode is dedicated to classic movie soundtracks. That can be found online at soundofcinema.podomatic.com. If you listened last week, we, we, we have a new practice where we will announce the movie of discussion for the next week's episode. So next week will be the 2012 film Killing Them Softly, starring Brad Pitt. So just heads up, that will be the next film we are discussing if you want to catch up on it and watch it before the show airs. All right, so until next time, I'm Alex Baker. And I'm Sean Baker. Saying, war. War never changes. <laughs>